Chapter 8, Part 1 of A Magician Among the Spirits by Harry Houdini. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8, Spirit Photography. With what is perhaps pardonable pride, we point to the genius of American enterprise in scientific advancement, but it is with decided chagrin that I repeat that, as modern spiritualism was born in America, so also have been most of the phenomena that, under the mask of spiritualism, have unbalanced so many fine intellects the world over. Spirit photography, the most prominent of mediumistic phenomena, had its beginning in Boston, hub of intellectual development, its coming being announced by Dr. Gardner, a devout spiritualist, who discovered a photographer that, in taking a photograph of himself, obtained on the same plate a likeness of a cousin dead some twelve years before. This was in 1862, but a little more than a decade after the original demonstration of so-called spirit power at Hydesville. Fortunately for the success of the new art, the photographer selected by the inhabitants of Summerland to use for the demonstration of the new phenomena was a medium, and of all the hosts in heaven, the spirit chosen to be photographed was singular coincidence, a cousin of his, who had passed the border some years previous. No sooner had the discovery been announced than spiritual enthusiasts in large numbers began flocking to the studio of the medium, Mr. William H. Mumler, and this kept up until evil spirits began to create an atmosphere of doubt and skepticism whereupon he abruptly took himself and his enterprise to New York City, a precipitous plunge presumably prompted by his spiritual guides. The change proved to be of great financial benefit to Mumler until the ire of the evil spirits was once more aroused and he was arrested on a charge of fraudulent transactions. A most interesting and sensational trial followed, with many noted people appearing as witnesses, among them being that prince of showmen, Phineas Taylor Barnum, who testified for the prosecution, and Judge John W. Edmonds of the Supreme Court bench for the defense. Mr. Barnum testified to having spent much time and study in the detection of humbugs, and had recently written a book called The Humbugs of the World. He knew Mumler only through reputation, but had had some correspondence with him in regard to his pictures, wishing to learn his process and expose it in his book, and some pictures which Mumler sent him Barnum paid ten dollars a piece for and put in his museum labeled as Spiritualistic Humbugs. Barnum's testimony was attacked by Mumbler's lawyer, who characterized it as being a very pretty illustration of humbug, and added that even if it were true, Barnum violated the great precept relating to honor among thieves. 
but I wanted to go on record as believing that Mr. Barnum told the truth in the Mumler case. Judge Edmonds declared on the stand that he had seen spirits, although many spiritualists could not, and recalled an instance when he was on the bench trying a case in which the payment of an accident insurance policy was the issue. He told the court that the whole aspect of the case was changed after he saw the spirit of the suicide, and several questions which this spirit had suggested were put to the witness, the decision being reversed on the testimony thus brought out. He also testified to his belief that Mumler's pictures were genuine photographs of spirits. During the trial, many methods of producing spirit extras were shown in court by expert photographers, and the possibilities of the effect being produced by natural means proven. The investigators, however, did not have their case in good shape. There were strong grounds for suspicion, but they were unable to present positive proof and though the court was morally convinced that fraudulent methods had been practiced, sufficient evidence to convict Mumler was lacking. Although acquitted, it is significant that Mumler refused an offer of $500 to reproduce his pictures in another studio under test conditions, and while free to resume his business, so far as the court was concerned, with a full harvest of dupes waiting to be fleeced, he was nevertheless soon lost to view and seems to have vanished entirely after the publication of his book in 1875. Spiritualistic mediumship is not immune to the flattery of imitation for even a casual examination of spiritualistic history and development shows that just as soon as a medium forms a new alliance with the psychic power dispenser and produces phenomena unknown before, other mediums immediately begin to produce it also, and the new manifestation soon becomes epidemic. It was so with spirit photography. No one had thought of such a possibility before Mumler invented the mystery, but talented mediums everywhere, when they heard of his pictures, began to produce them also. Stories of his success crossed the sea, and Europe discovered equal talent there. In the summer of 1874, a Parisian photographer by the name of Bougeot went over to London and attracted considerable attention with his spirit pictures. They were of much higher artistic quality than any preceding ones, and Podmore in his Modern Spiritualism tells us that the spirit faces were in most cases clearly defined and were, in fact, frequently recognized by the sitters, and even W. H. Harrison failed to detect any trickery in the operation. After a short stay during which his demonstrations completely satisfied such men as Reverend Stainton Moses, who was liberal with his endorsements, Bourgeois returned to Paris, where the next year he was placed under arrest charged with the fraudulent manufacture of spirit photographs. 
Unlike Mumler, his conscience did not prove court-proof, or perhaps the evidence against him was such that a friendly spirit advised confession. At any rate, he told the court that all of his spirit photographs were the result of double exposure. On the strength of this confession, Bourgeois was convicted and sentenced to one year of imprisonment and a fine of 500 francs. A like sentence was given to M. Lemaire, editor of the Review Spirits, who admitted suggesting to Bourgeois that he should enter the field of spirit photography. The police seized all the paraphernalia in the studio of Bourgeois and took it to court. Amongst it was a lay figure and a large stock of heads. These, with dolls and assistants at the studio, took turns as inspirations for spirit extras. But the real interest of the trial was not these revelations, Podmore tells us, for after all, Bourgeois did little to improve on the methods inaugurated by his predecessors. It is the effect produced on his dupes by Bourgeois's confession and the display of his trick apparatus, which is really worthy of attention. Witness after witness, journalist, photographic expert, musician, merchant, man of letters, optician, ex-professor of history, colonel of artillery, etc., etc., came forward to testify on behalf of the accused. Some had watched the process throughout and were satisfied that trickery had not been practiced. Many had obtained on the plate unmistakable portraits of those dear to them and found it impossible to relinquish their faith. One after another these witnesses were confronted with Bourgeois and heard him explain how the trick had been done. One after another they left the witness box, protesting that they could not doubt the evidence of their own eyes. Here, chosen almost at random from many similar accounts, is the testimony of M. Dessenon, picture-seller, aged fifty-five. After describing how he had obtained in the first instance various figures which he could not recognize, he continues, The portrait of my wife, which I had especially asked for, is so like her that when I showed it to one of my relatives, he exclaimed, It's my cousin. The court. Was that chance bourgeois? Bourgeois. Yes, pure chance. I had no photograph of Madame Dessenon. The Witness My children, like myself, thought the likeness perfect. When I showed them the picture, they cried, It's Mama! A very fortunate chance. I am convinced it was my wife. The Court You see this doll and all the rest of the things? The Witness there is nothing there in the least like the photograph which I obtained. Incidentally, there were two or three curious bits of evidence on the value of recognition as a test. A police officer stated that Bourgeois showed him a portrait which had done duty as the sister of one sitter, the mother of a second, 
and the friend of a third. Again, it came out in the evidence that a very clearly defined head, reproduced as an illustration to Stainton Moses' articles in Human Nature, which had been claimed by M. Lemaire as the portrait of his almost lifelong friend, M. Poiret, was recognized by another witness as an excellent likeness of his father-in-law, still living at Bro, and much annoyed at his premature introduction to the spirit world. From Mumler's first pictures to the present day, spirit photography has played a large part in the field of spiritualistic devotion, and innumerable mediums have discovered that they possessed the same phenomenal power for producing the coveted likeness in the form of extras on the sensitized plate. The art has now advanced to such a stage that it is no longer necessary for one to sit, but all that is needed is a relic of the departed one, something which either belonged or was of especial interest to the person. This relic is photographed, and when the plate is developed, there appears beside it as an extra the face of the departed. That is, I should say, if your imagination is strong enough to see a resemblance to the person supposed to be represented. Nor is a camera necessary in these days, according to the spiritualists. In fact, I am told that it is not necessary to even open a box of plates, but that they can be magnetized just as they come from the maker, provided the box is in the possession of the medium a few days in advance of the sitting. This single condition fulfilled and the demonstration will follow if the sitters, including the nearest relative, pile their hands on top of the mediums. Then, to create a solemn atmosphere, the sitters are usually asked to join in some form of religious devotion such as singing, Nearer My God to Thee, or a fervent prayer. This is the type of performance conducted by what is known as the crew photographers and supported and defended by the present-day leaders in spiritualism. This crew combination of photographers is under the management of professional spiritualists and is an organized effort to promulgate this particular phase of spiritualistic phenomena. The group consists of Mr. William Hope and Mrs. Buxton, crew, Mrs. Dean of London, and Mr. Verncombe of Bridgewater. My friend, Harry Price, attended a sitting given by Hope, and tells of the religious exercises as follows. Mrs. Buxton sang several verses of Nearer My God to Thee, after which Mr. Hope made a long impromptu prayer in which he thanked God for all our many mercies, and hoped he would continue his blessings at the present moment. He also craved blessings on our fellow creatures and friends on the other side, and asked assistance in the attempt to link up with them, etc. Then Mrs. Buxton sang another hymn, after which Mr. Hope picked up the package of dry plates, put them between the hands of Mrs. Buxton, placed her hands on his, and others in the party piled their hands on top.
Then we had another impromptu prayer by Mrs. Buxton. Then the Lord's Prayer was sung, and a short hymn concluded the service. Can one imagine a sacrilege more revolting than singing hymns, saying prayers, and calling on the Almighty for help in such fraudulent work? The combination evaded detection and were doing a most successful business when in the spring of 1921, Mr. Edward Bush of the Society of Psychical Research laid a snare into which Hope walked with his eyes wide open. Mr. Bush wrote for an appointment under the assumed name of D. Wood, enclosing a photograph of a son-in-law who was alive. On the back of the photograph was written, Tell Dad, if anything happens to me, I will try and let him have a spirit photo. Tell him to shout up to let me know where he goes to. Jack Aykroyd. Hope arranged a time for a sitting, but returned the photo, saying he regretted that it had been sent as it subjected him to suspicion. When the time for the sitting arrived, Hope went under control, and Mr. Bush manipulated the plates as he directed, but no extras appeared. On the next day, however, when the plate was developed after another sitting, there was an extra which proved to be a likeness of the son-in-law. Mr. Bush published the details of this exposure in a pamphlet, and the London Truth said editorially, but not only have William Hope and his sister medium Mrs. Buxton cause to kick themselves at Mr. Bush's exposure, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Lady Glen Connor, the Reverend Walter Wynne, and many other leading lights of the movement have brought these products of faith and hope forward as conclusive proof of the continuation of existence and the possibility of communication with the next world. Later, in the same year, Mr. C. R. Mitchell, a former leader of the Hackney Spiritualistic Society and well-known in mediumistic circles in London, was selected to undertake certain tests of a scientific nature for the purpose of ascertaining the value of these spirit phenomena. Mr. Mitchell was a photographer and wished to use his own plates in the experiment, but Mrs. Dean, who was to conduct it, refused to let him unless he first left them with her for a few days to be magnetized. He objected to this, and it was finally agreed that he could use his own plates, provided he would magnetize them himself, but the results were unsatisfactory. He then purchased from Mrs. Dean a package of fresh plates, which, it was claimed, had not been opened since it left the manufacturer. The likeness of a soldier appeared on one of these, which Mr. Mitchell developed himself, and he concluded that not only had the plates been magnetized, but that they had been exposed in a camera as well. The issue of Truth for June 28, 1922, gives an account of the experience of an ex-Indian missionary who, with three others, visited the crew photographers and sat for spirit pictures. 
Four exposures were made, and the spirit extras appeared on two of the plates, but the men could not remember whether the plates had at any time been beyond their control, so the missionary arranged for another sitting, taking the precaution to have his plates marked on the corner with a glazier's diamond. At the second sitting, one spirit extra was produced, but there was no diamond mark on the plate, positive proof that an exchange had been effected. During 1922, the Occult Committee of the Magic Circle took up the investigation of spirit photography, first giving its attention to Mr. Viercombe, who produced spirit extras in connection with some object once in possession of the deceased. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle put this committee in touch with the Honorary Secretary of the Society for the Study of Supernormal Pictures, Mr. Barlow, and at the latter's suggestion sent him an unopened package of plates for Mr. Viercombe. Although Barlow objected, for Viercombe's satisfaction, though not essential, the package was enclosed in a lead case. Also, at Barlow's suggestion, a fee accompanied the package. After a month of waiting, the committee received a photograph of the package, and on the photograph was a spirit message which read, Bard your side. In order to remove the barrier, a fresh package of plates was forwarded to Viercombe, this time in an ordinary wrapper. Some months later, after the plates had been spiritually treated by Viercombe, they were returned to the committee. When developed, psychic extras were found on two plates. There was evidence that the package had been tampered with, and the same spirit had been seen on other photographs. The committee sent Viercombe a package of plates under an assumed name, but received word from him that it was not necessary to send plates. That small objects which had belonged to the deceased would do, and that if the proper fee were enclosed, photographic prints showing the psychic extras obtained would be supplied. As a full compliance with this suggestion would have been useless as a test, a box of plates, a small object supposed to have belonged to the deceased, and the fee were sent. Again, Viercombe protested that he did not treat unopened boxes of plates owing to many failures, but offered to expose plates on the object which had been supplied. He was informed that such exposure would be unsatisfactory, whereupon, rather than disappoint his correspondent, he consented and forwarded the package with the statement that he had treated the plates as desired and hoped for success. On development, a psychic image appeared on one of the plates, but the committee found that the wrappers of the package had been unsealed and the plates disturbed in their arrangement. In order to clinch the results of their trapping, Viercombe was informed that the experiment had been a success. But in order to avoid criticism, he was asked for an assurance that the package had not been tampered with. It soon came in the form of a written statement 
that the package had been treated by him and returned to the sender as originally sealed when he received it. The committee has arranged fourteen tests, twelve of which had been violated, and as two or three violations would have been sufficient evidence of fraud, it did not consider more necessary, but reported that it had been established by the evidence that fraud-proof packages produced no results, whereas it found spirit extras in packages which had been tampered with, and that collectively the result is damning. The committee next directed its attention to Mrs. Dean, who, because of complications from annoying sitters, had given up private practice at her residence and was working under engagement with the British College of Psychic Science. The principal of the college, Mr. Mackenzie, had vouched for her as being absolutely conscientious and straightforward in her work, and one fully qualified to produce psychic extras without resort to trickery. Mr. Harry Price and Mr. Seymour negotiated for a private sitting with her. She required that sealed plates should be sent several days in advance for magnetization. Six plates were exposed at the sitting, and on most of them extras appeared. But evidence was obtained that the package had been opened previous to the sitting, and the plates treated but there had been no substitution of plates. An effort was made to get more convincing evidence, and after considerable difficulty, a second sitting was arranged for. This time, the committee went to a manufacturer, whose plates had been mentioned by the college people as being preferable, and had a special package made up and sealed. In this package, each plate was so marked that substitution or manipulation were sure to be revealed. It was simply fraud-proof. At the sitting, the regular prayer and hymn-singing were conducted as usual, after which the plates were exposed and developed. It was found that the package had been opened previously, the top plate removed and another substituted for it, and on this substituted plate only, there was a spirit extra. At a third sitting, a fresh box of secretly marked plates were opened in the presence of Mrs. Dean. Four plates were loaded into as many separate slides, and Mrs. Dean carried them into the adjoining studio. On a table in the studio was a handbag, and beside it, a hymn book. The hand in which she held the four slides momentarily disappeared inside the bag, while at the same time she picked up the hymn book with her other hand. With the hymn book, she had picked up a duplicate slide, which, with a perfectly natural movement, she added to the three in her other hand one of the four marked plates, having been dropped in the bag where it was found later by one of the investigators who examined the bag while Mrs. Dean was absent for a moment. Following the customary religious service, the four plates were exposed and then developed. Three plates, which had the identifying marks, had no spirit extra, but the fourth plate, which had no identification mark, did have a spirit form. 
As a result of this investigation, the committee found that whenever there was an opportunity, packages were opened and treated, plates substituted, and in the tests which followed, spirit extras were secured, but when the conditions were absolutely fraud-proof, there were no extras, and so far as it was able to discover, all the so-called spirit photography rested on the flimsy foundation of fraud. End of Chapter 8, Part 1